Chapter forty five of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty five. Both the old ladies had been better than their word. They had stayed on at Swarland in spite of the stroke of adverse fortune that had befallen them all. They had chosen to stand by Edith, who was much changed, and who was doing her best to be a better manager than she had been in the past. Household matters had been properly organized and set on a footing for all time by Amy. It was less difficult to keep them straight. The Swarland catastrophe was not attributable to any action of Edith's. She had not dismissed Amy, and she had been as much taken by surprise as any of them. They knew that, for Mrs. Dand was incapable of guile, except in a small way, and she was, moreover, lying ill and crippled in bed at the time when Amy had chosen to execute her coup de main. It was not until July, when Amy had been gone nearly seven months, that Mrs. Dand could reckon herself completely recovered and was allowed by the doctor to go about the house as before. That gentleman, indeed, thought that she had been very quick about it, considering that she had been accounted dead for nearly twenty-four hours after the accident. But— "'Recovery from concussion,' Mrs. Bowman remarked uncharitably, "'depends entirely on how much brain you have got to concuss. Now, if it had been my poor son who had been injured, one could have understood his present state.' The master of Swarland was failing. Everyone noticed it. He was not half the man he was. He was pining away because he could not live without Amy Stevens. He grossly made no secret of it, there was no stopping his mouth. Edith talked wisely and serenely about his state, out of books. She instructed the others so that her own philosophy of the case came back to her in their preaching. She must not mind too much, or allow herself to be affronted by his crude speeches and behaviour, for a man in his physical and mental condition need hardly be held responsible for his words. She must put self aside and cleverly while him away from his overpowering preoccupation. She must not, of course, take an invalid's diagnosis of his own health, and must trust to time and care and change of subject. His little son was coming on, and she must hope to get the father to take more interest in the child as the days wore on. He had refused to take a holiday, or they would have gone to the south of France, and lived and bathed in sunlight, which would have done her good, too. But Jeremy's intense obstinacy and selfishness must always be taken into account. He still went every day into town, and very often he chose to sleep there, in a room he had retained permanently at the Continental. He preferred the dinner at the Old Fort Conservative Club, an insult which she was forced to smilingly let pass, to his wife's catering. Accounts, timid, hesitating, from the office, told of a certain failure of grip and control of the many affairs under his charge. But Lord Gould, the head of the firm, was devoted to him, and would never be hard on him. Mr. Johnson was invaluable and ubiquitous. Somehow or other, they all hoped to tide over this trying time of the head man's temporary invalidation. If it passed away— the fear of the ancestral curse of the Dans of Swarland lurking, less aloof than usual, hung over the household, like a doom of ill. Daily the three ladies discussed the awful problem of Amy and her prolonged absence. 
she was the pivot on which their comfort and more than their comfort turned the whole fabric of family life was like a machine from which an important screw has dropped out the thoughtless girl had now been full seven months away she had literally flitted and no one had realized the finality of her easy good-byes she had given no address as it had turned out though at the time each lady referred to the other for that useful indication did mr dand know where she was did he correspond with her he had forbidden any one to mention her name to him the order was scrupulously obeyed for he was liable now to transports of ungovernable rage which he did not try to govern but in the drawing-room conciliabules which were the only comfort of the three forlorn women surmise of every kind and sometimes of the crudest was rife when little erina and little hugh came in bowed and pinafored all tongues were stopped from wagging talk about amy was strictly tabooed for the time but after the children's hour was over the inalienable subject was once more introduced had jeremy sent amy away had they quarrelled had she gone of her own accord was he keeping her somewhere lady medrow called her a cockatrice mrs bowman called her a most managing woman who ought to be head of some institution or other somewhere wherever she was they all agreed she was managing something or somebody mrs johnson during the course of a brief visit never repeated on her return from london had contributed a spiteful item to the fund of surmise which they all three refused to hear of edith had closed her ears out of vanity the other two from sheer liking for amy they all disliked melisande who was never asked again mr dand had been quite consistent he had sedulously refused to address a single word to her while she was under his roof the situation was most unpleasant but the husband of melisande good creature out of his love for jeremy accepted it and meekly agreed to his wife's paying a prolonged and indefinite visit to her mother at blois while he himself consented practically to live at swarland so as to be a help to jeremy and an escort to him on his daily journeys to oldfort mrs dand had come to lean on the author as the brother she had never had he constituted the only intermediary between herself and her alienated husband mrs dand present at these conclaves with her strip of needlework or embroidered frock for erina spoke very little from a talkative discursive loosely speaking woman she had grown curiously self-contained it was her mother's reproach that edith brooded and was a regular curmudgeon about gossip she listened to cogitations reminiscences about amy she did not contribute it was her idea of decency so mrs bowman thought and commended her daughter-in-law she was sure however at the same time that dear edith liked to hear about amy and took it all in though she was so quiet she looked older physically some grey streaks showed in her ebony hair she was a little agitated about this sign of age but not much she allowed lotions to be recommended to her but was casual about their use as usual she bought many clothes and hardly looked at them her whole personality was settling she had the soul of a schoolgirl she was only now growing up too late to be a successful woman in her sad stupid beautiful eyes was the slow maturing of a futile an imperfect scheme and theory of life 
her mental apparatus moved slowly, but oiled by misfortune, it worked. One very hot day in mid-July, she sent her little girl with a solemn message to Mr. Johnson in the study, left vacant today by Jeremy Dan's absence in Oldfort. Would Mr. Johnson kindly give her five minutes' conversation in her boudoir? Mr. Johnson put away his papers. He was writing another novel, alone this time, and obeyed. As an author, this panorama of typical women interested him deeply. Amy, and then Edith, each so absolutely different. And he had the confidant of both of them. Jeremy, his friend, between them. Of the two lovers he was passionately fond. Edith he did not care for. She was too raw, too conventional, too simple for the lover of complexity. He was sorry for her, her trivial personality ground between the two stronger, more overbearing ones of Jeremy and Amy. It was five o'clock. There were no flowers on Mrs. Dan's balcony. The gardener had forgotten another lapse occasioned by Amy's absence. The effect of the whole apartment was less consciously meretricious than it had been in Amy's time. There were fewer scent bottles and photographs and flowers. But Edith still adhered to her voluptuous tea-gowns, and rose to meet him in a cloud of vaporous chiffon as heretofore. She spoke quickly, inartistically, with the ugly slurring modulation that meant with her a certain degree of emotion. "'Mr. Johnson, I sent for you because I suddenly felt that I must speak to a man. The old ladies are all very well, but one gets no further with them, and I have come to see how serious it all is. I must have something settled about Amy.' She stopped. There was a tear on her eyelid. She was one of those women who cannot discuss their own affairs without shedding tears of self-pity. Mr. Johnson waited patiently till she had rapidly passed her lace handkerchief over her eyes and had rushed into garrulous speech. "'It is a case of possession, demoniacal possession!' she exclaimed. "'She has bewitched my husband. There is no doubt of it. You know about these sorts of things. If people were burned for witchcraft nowadays, I would have Amy burned.' "'I believe you would,' he replied, fascinated by her murderous stolidity." She had more character than he supposed. I would stand up and accuse her of coming here into his house and mine, and setting herself to steal away his health and his peace of mind. He didn't love her, or she him, but all the same she had the power of sending him wild, by removing herself and keeping away from him when he most wanted her. She makes him want her from a distance. She has driven him mad, and if that isn't being a witch, I don't know what is. Dear lady, Jeremy isn't mad. No, I tell you he is possessed. He eats, but his food does not nourish him. He lies down, but he cannot sleep. He is always kind and courteous to me, but he looks at me like a man that is bound somehow. I am very unhappy about it, Mr. Johnson. So am I. He pulled himself up with a jerk. But look here, you must not get the thing on your nerves like this. You must not let it worry you. Not worry? Am I to look on quietly and see my husband simply perishing before my eyes? I know, Jeremy. He has a very peculiar constitution, and I tell you he hasn't a year's life in him if this goes on. I must worry. I know too much not to. Mr. Johnson, I am not a fool. 
I know it is the fashion in this house, and especially since Amy came, to say that I am only a pretty doll, and care for nothing but clothes, but it isn't true. I am really a very serious sort of woman, and what is more, I have a heart. Jeremy, whom I am breaking my own about, quietly, has none. No, have none of you found that out ever? He doesn't know what love is. Mr. Johnson looked in interrogation. Pardon me, I never said that he loved Amy. I did not admit such a disgraceful thing. I deny it. I do not for a single moment believe that there is anything wrong between them, or ever has been. Only the absurd fact remains he can't live without her, or thinks he can't. He's a hysterical man. There are hysterical men as well as women. Whether he cares for her in that improper way or not, and you look as if you thought him an unfaithful husband, yes, you do. I admit that he doesn't seem able to bear her not being about as usual. His business suffers, and you know how interested he always was and is in the office work, and, of course, annoyance there reacts on his nerves and makes him worse. He can't do without praise from Lord Gould, and that Gresham Green deal not coming off, and there assuming it was his fault, touched him deeply. Amy, oh, I dare say he admires her in a way, more than me, obviously, I quite recognize that. She was wandering slightly in thought as usual. To give herself a countenance, she looked furtively in a little mirror that stood on the small table at her elbow. Johnson appreciated the pathos of the unconscious gesture. She continued, If you asked him now, he would say that he loved her. He does say so, of course. I have heard him shouting it out through the closed doors when you have been with him, and you hushing him. Nice position for me. All the servants could hear it, too, for, of course, I wasn't at the keyhole. Do you know, Mr. Johnson, she continued with a bitter smile, I used to laugh and say that Amy was the mistress of this house, but that I was the mistress of his heart, and that I preferred it so. I used to say it to her. But now it is the other way, I think. I rule my household, and Amy rules my husband. He thinks of nothing else. I am only the old grey-haired housekeeper. Do you want her to come back? said the secretary bluntly. Is that what you were driving at? Yes, that is what I am driving at. I am sorry to say I have sunk so low, and I want you to help me. It is the only way. I want to abolish self. Besides, I was always fond of Amy. I believe in her, in spite of appearances. It isn't as if I was trying to get back my husband's mistress into the house again. Amy was a good sort, only a little too autocratic. But except for her managing one rather too much, I have nothing against her. If only Jeremy hadn't talked so much, and taken everyone in the place here, and at Oldfort, into our confidence, no harm would have been done. The doctor doesn't say so. I suppose he is too delicate to say such a thing to me. But I can see he thinks nothing else but Amy will cure Jeremy. He knows all about it. How could he help? There's that photograph of the picture that's like Amy, stuck out on the desk at Oldfort, for all the world and the office boy to see. And Amy in a group that Mr. Judd did, that Jeremy keeps under his pillow, I know. Amy would never be properly photographed. I suppose she has something in her life she was afraid or ashamed of. I don't know. But I do know that Jeremy does his best to be reminded of her every minute. 
everybody within a radius of twenty miles of this place knows now that mr dand of swarland loves a woman who isn't his wife and exults in it it is a horrible snub and disgrace to me but as i said it is a case of being bewitched bewitched besotted maddened as we all were mr johnson burst out gained by her melodramatic excitement do you know that even my wife and i are estranged on her account such an imbroglio upon my word i don't see even if we could communicate with her that we could possibly have her back here send your wife to me mr johnson i'd talk to her i would convince her of what i have come to feel convinced of myself i would tell her that i don't regard them as human at all people like amy and my husband they are too morbid to be real they confuse themselves with reading books and muddle their ideas of right and wrong i have even a strong idea that those two never even cared to kiss each other but lived on a vague sort of spiritual plane somehow where everything looked different and where they had made up their minds to do without commonplace things of that kind nice silly stupid things that i can't imagine a man loving a woman without but then i am human i love jeremy as human women love i can't understand these halfway houses mr johnson i don't know why i am speaking to you so intimately dear mrs dand said the author touched i quite understand you are explaining to me your belief in the absence of traffic of love between these two persons you may be right you probably are the sweat stood on his forehead as he thought of the guilty days of blois and of what he alone in the house knew but to be practical i don't see what is to be done since we have no means of finding her i doubt if even jeremy knows she has left him quite in the dark and that is what upsets him so there seems nothing to be done now except for you to modify your style as far as you can in the line that jeremy prefers should you not contrive somehow to be less dignified more lively to be a charming all-round companion for him meet him in his studies as she did read improper books do you mean if amy read them she didn't understand them i am sure hastily retorted the secretary adding diplomatically she was not really literary but i see no need for you to alter your character to be attractive to your husband just be sweet sprightly capricious at times as women know how graft your own charming personality on the idea he has preserved of hers and edge it out live amy down in fact i'll try you know mr johnson i don't blame amy quite it's partly my own fault i've been thinking i neglected the wisdom of ages which says plainly a woman who cares for her husband must never venture to have an attractive companion in the house it never has answered yet not that amy was much to look at she had somehow what helen of troy had said the secretary meditatively or cressida what was that not beauty i was going to tell you of a curious case there was a girl my mother was telling me about I doubt if Mamma ever saw her or heard her name, but still she knew the whole story. This girl was one of that sort, you know. I mean, she was a very wicked girl, and what you call lived with Sir Mervyn Diamond, whom Mamma knew so very well. She was caught red-handed in the house with him when he died, 
and very cleverly contrived to disappear after the inquest. Then Mamma heard of her again, with her name slightly altered. It was a common name, I never heard it. And she had had the face to take a situation with Mamma's great friend, Mrs. Riven, at Swanburg, as lady housekeeper, and there she did her best to get hold of the young son of the house and lead him astray. Only she was pulled off in time. The boy's dead since, I hear, and the mother says that the adventuress ill-wished him at the time, out of revenge, and threatened her with his death that did really happen a year after. "'What a sad story,' murmured Mr. Johnson, whose brow was wet, but it was a hot day. "'Yes, wasn't it? No, what I say is, Amy hasn't behaved badly, not so badly as some of these creatures do. She did what I suppose a decent woman in her place would have done. She went away as soon as she saw the trouble she was causing in a respectable house. At least that's the way I read it. She's gone and feels very proud of her forbearance and moderation, I dare say. She got nothing out of Jeremy. But then he's not fond of giving presents. He never even gave me things for my very own. Hates parting. But what has she left me? The empty shell of my happiness. The husk of a husband who used to adore me. I have no doubt she considers herself a martyr to her sense of duty, perfectly blameless because she has run away from temptation. But I personally don't thank her for refraining in the hour of her triumph, so to speak, and with the result that she has sent my poor husband melancholy mad. But Mrs. Dand. I don't. I think she has behaved very badly to us both, saving her own character at his expense. She began it. Why is he to suffer because she suddenly thinks better of it and turns good? A woman has no right to lead a man on so far and then run away. It is not fair to him. Then you would have had her. Oh, I know, it's exactly what women do. Save themselves at the last moment and vote themselves honourable. But the man thinks very little of them. They should consider all the things in the beginning and realise what it means when they start a flirtation. No, they lead him on, and then cut off supplies suddenly, and the man goes mad. Yes, Jeremy is mad because of her, and the disappointment she has given him. Well, let her come back and cure him. She looked round her wildly, and met Mr. Johnson's startled eyes. This was a new theory, even to him. You think me immoral, perhaps I am, but that's it. That's the only way. And never mind me. I'll go. I'm only the extra person in this house, not wanted, I, and yet I was considered a beauty. Jeremy, she wept. That's as it may be, but I won't stand in the way. I love my husband. I think only of him, of his happiness, not at all of mine. I am not a selfish woman. I am capable of sacrifice. I could do as Alcestes did, Mr. Johnson, Alcestes and the burning brand, who gave up her life for her dead husband, and I will divorce him. I'll do anything they like. I don't care. Oh, Mr. Johnson, I'm past caring. Send my boy to me. He can't take that away. He left her sobbing, pressing the flaps of the pink peignoir into her eyes. End of chapter 45 Recorded by Lisa Reichert